In the movie MASH, there was a song that said, Suicide is painless. It brings on many changes. Well, suicide is anything but painless. And it does bring on changes. It brings on tragedy. It brings on heartbreak. It brings on a lot of human misery for those who are left behind. Hello, everyone. This is Ned Wicker, and this is Recovery Now. And today we're going to be talking about suicide as it relates to alcoholism and drug addiction. And alongside, as usual, is Reverend Dr. Dan Geating. And Dan, this is so profoundly sad, especially as it relates to to young people or to anyone for that matter. But suicide is a real part of alcoholism and addiction. Yes, it is. Uh, I am glad to be here today. And Many times it's very difficult even for us to talk about it and maybe want to look at it. But as one has said, we cannot heal something that is covered with debris until we get the debris off and can look at it and then have some hope. And one of the uh, things that I came across today was from Dave Dravecki, Outreach of Hope. Dave Dravecki was the baseball player lost his arm to cancer, had a life-changing event. He, his wife, and uh, Joni Erickson Tata have developed a ministry, and Jan Dravecki, the wife, wrote a devotional, and it was on the website today. Their website is info at outreachofhope.org, info at outreachofhope.org. And one of the things they talked about I thought goes along with us because it looks at hopelessness and helplessness. And when we talk about recovery, we say step one. And where do we reach out for that hope when we are in step one? But this is a scriptural influence that she wrote about. And I just want to give you the words of uh, Jan Dravecki today, who out of their pain, brokenness, and limitation that came on their doorstep unexpected, have been able to be winners. And listen to this. And the devotional is from Deuteronomy 36. She states, so very often my head follows my heart, Sometimes I wish my head had more say over matters, but in the end, my heart wins out. Knowing that, knowing myself, I've made it a habit to pray for God to work first in my heart. I've tried willing my heart to be disciplined and obedient. It's no use. I have to surrender my heart to God and ask him to do whatever needs to be done there first my head, and eventually my feet will follow. How helpless I am. I need God's help even to obey him. That's why I love this quote. No one can possibly go forward in the strength of the Lord until he or she has first learned to stand still in his or her own helplessness. Ooh, that's powerful. Helplessness is such a key word. And that's kind of a word that we're going to be focusing on here in the next half hour. And and, and today, uh, a dear friend is with us. Uh, Carolyn Hudson, uh, I've known for many years, uh, a mother of two great kids. Uh, 
a, a Christian uh, worker in the church, has uh, done women's ministries, has done children's ministries, has done administrative work, and has always got her fingers in something. But uh, Carolyn is a very uh, is a person with a very sad story to tell because uh, Carolyn, your life was impacted by suicide and alcoholism and and first of all thank you for for coming with us and and we want to hear your story well thank you for having me i am thrilled that you're approaching this topic because i think in today's world we still experience stigma in regards to suicide and it's one of the things as dan mentioned previously uh, you never think it's going to happen to your family. It's always something you read about in the paper or hear on the radio or see on TV. And when that impacts your life, um, there is a moment of of hopelessness and pain that you can't even describe. So I really commend you for attacking this subject. Um, and I think it's something that's pertinent to today even more so as suicide rate, suicide rate, suicide continue to... Um, that's okay. <laughs> I can't say it either. Oh, yeah, don't worry. We all get stuck, and Suicides, that's what's so nice about this round yeah. table. <laughs> Suicide statistics continue to rise, that yeah. it continues to increase, not only in um, adults, but it's even rising in, in teenagers. So I'm, I'm glad to be here. It's my understanding that some seven about 7% of alcoholics will eventually uh, either successfully commit suicide or attempt it and 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 that of those that attempt it it, alcohol is involved in the process 96 percent of those times so yeah the two kind of go together but your father Mm -hmm. was one who struggled for years with alcoholism and just came to that point where he said i I, i'm i'm done and and tell us what tell us what happened well it really was happened at a time where we thought things were improving dramatically. Uh, my dad did have a serious alcohol addiction for many years and actually did end up going through treatment. Um, and we were very excited because, as I say, I got my dad back and my mom said I got Bob back. So um, going through treatment was critical for him, and he did go through the healing process during that time. It was the aftermath um, of treatment um that he began slowly slipping into a, um, a real severe depression. And it was very, very gradual. And so as this was happening, our family really wasn't aware that he was starting to, I call it, he was slipping into a pit, the pit of despair. That's what I, in my own mind, can actually visualize someone being in this dark, dark pit and not being able to get out. And I believe that's what um, the point he was at when he decided to... Um, find what he thought was the best solution was to get out of that pit. So um, I think it happened at a time where we were not even expecting it. We were on the, the really the high, if you will, of him going through recovery and not drinking and um, really being able to have our family back like it was. Our circumstances were such that he had a lot to live for in hindsight. Uh, he was going to be a grandfather for the first time in five months. I graduated from college. So um, he was looking to retire within the next year. Um, and so there were a lot of very positive things that in today's world we would see, well, he had it really great. You know, things were looking pretty good. And so as he began to slip into this depression, it wasn't until uh, probably three or four months later 
that um, looking back on it now, as hindsight's always twenty twenty, um, we could see that the, his personality started to change very, very gradually. He was very gregarious, always had a great joke to tell, um, and always usually on himself and had this wonderful sense of humor. And over the course of about, uh, he ended his treatment in July and was in October, late October, early November that we started to see a little bit of a change in his personality. But didn't register with us that it had to do with a mental health issue or his recovery. But I think the red flag in looking at it now was that once he went through treatment for, it was about between 30 and 45 days, he was inpatient treatment. There was no resources or available at that time that we plugged him into or knew to get plugged into. He dried out. He was, you know, functioning normally. But we didn't have a group around us to support him or our family. And I think in today's world, one of the positives that I see with alcohol and drug addiction and even suicide is that now there are more and more resources available. There are resources for families. And um, it's not so much uh, a stigma as much today to, to go through drug or alcohol rehab. It's become so common. Um, that there are resources available that are pretty apparent to a lot of people. But back when this happened, which was in uh, the late 70s, even alcoholism was still fairly secretive. You didn't, um, there was an embarrassment about it. There was this ability that we can handle it within the family, which we, we chose to do, and that's what we thought was the right way. When the truth of the matter is, that's the worst thing you can do. You need to reach out. You need to have um, support system around you. You need counseling. Um, both family and individual. And so when he began this depression, uh, we just thought it was maybe just a change in his, you know, attitude or whatever. He, he functioned fine. He was working, uh, nothing like that. But it was on a Christmas Eve that, um, in the midst of a family celebration that he literally just almost, well, looked like he was having a nervous breakdown and just, just fell apart. And, um, we were just didn't know what to do. We were shocked. It was we. It wasn't expected. We'd done Christmas shopping. Uh, he and I together the day before. It even wrapped my mom's Christmas gifts together. And uh, he was an expert gift wrapper. And uh, this just it was just something that we weren't expecting. And so um, we got through the Christmas Eve and Christmas Day and the day after Christmas, my mom took him to the doctor and they admitted him. Uh, and they said he had severe depression and. Um, that was on December 27th, and he was in there until um, January 19th. And what happened in that course of time was they were doing all kinds of psychological testing. He was going to group therapy. He was working with a psychiatrist, and um, they were trying different types of pain, uh, medication, which at that point, um, I think we've come a long way in helping depression. I think there are some very constructive um drug therapies that work that can really be helpful. I think there were a lot of things that were unknown back in the 70s on how to treat depression. They tried a lot of different medications that really, uh, some of them were pretty intense um, and almost changed him just from taking the medication. But in the course of that, trying to work through whatever it was that caused his his pain, um, and so um, he was in there for three weeks, a little over three weeks, and I would visit him every day after I would leave work and and go and talk with him. And I think the point that I realized we were in a real deep, desperate situation was just a conversation we were having around a table like this over coffee. And 
I said, well, Dad, how was your day today? And I remember him looking at me right in the eye and said, my mind is so confused, I can't even decide what shirt or pair of slacks to put on in the mornings. I can't even decide anything. And, um, you know, I at that time, and I was much younger than I am now, but I thought, wow, that just must really be awful. And so um, I remember leaving that evening concerned that we weren't making any progress. But being fairly young myself, I didn't have the wherewithal to start challenging the doctors and ask questions. Um, looking back, um, the doctors probably wouldn't want to have to deal with me <laughs> as I am today because I would be asking a lot of questions and uh, challenging some things. But the truth of the matter was they did the best they could under the circumstances and at the time. And they were deciding that it might be helpful for him to t- begin transitioning home uh, to a normal life and then do outpatient treatment. And so um, they decided to write an order for him to come home on a Sunday for six hours do whatever family activities we did, and then we would take him back to the hospital that evening. And so he did that the next Sunday, and things went well. He came home. We did our normal Sunday things after church. We, My mom always cooked a big dinner, and just was kind of time for our family to be together. And uh, we just chatted. And, you know, I thought it seemed like things were making progress. And then um, they had written this for a couple of weeks in a row and then to evaluate whether or not they could release him. And so on week two, the next week, the order was written for him to come home on Sunday. And uh, sun- the Saturday night before, uh, my mom um, just had this sense that he just really shouldn't be coming home. It, there was just, she didn't seem to feel like he was making a lot of progress. And matter of fact, she felt like he might even be going in the other direction. And... Um, so she called the doctor that morning and said, you know, I really don't think Bob's ready to come home today. I can't explain it, but I just don't feel like um, things are quite right. And um, basically the, the the nurses there said, well, he's packed and ready to go, and he's waiting for you. And the, doc- the order's been written. And uh, so my mom um, thought, okay, we'll, we'll go get him. She brought him home, and I was on my own living at the time, and so I wasn't part of this. But uh, I was planning to go home to visit uh, that afternoon after I finished church. And um, when I got there, it was about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, my dad was sitting in the chair, and we chatted about you know the week and what I was doing. And then he just very calmly said, I just want you to know I'm so proud of you for graduating from college and... Um, just for all that you've accomplished and what you're doing. And I love you very much, and you've been a wonderful daughter. And, um, you know, basically, Dad said all the things you'd want your dad to say to you. So I feel very blessed to have had that experience. And then he went in the kitchen. My mom was doing his favorite meal, fried chicken, mashed potatoes, and gravy, you know, southern fried stuff. And he told her the same thing, what a great wife she had been through a lot of painful things, but... um how much he loved her, and he was going to go lay down until dinner was ready for us to come get him and let him know. And so he went back to the bedroom to lay down, and we were putting the meal on the table, and within about a five- or ten-minute period, we heard a gunshot. And um, it was at that moment that you things became really surreal. Um, um, At that moment, I knew in my spirit what I just knew what what would have taken place and so I told my mom to call 911 and I went back in the bedroom and um, it was just a very sight that you will I'll never forget 
but um, didn't want my mom to have that experience. And so I kept her out, and emergency was there within a few minutes, and obviously could not do anything. It was one shot, and that was it. And um, I remember thinking through that as we were on our way to the hospital. Uh, in my heart, I knew there wasn't anything um, in the world we could do, but there was a lot of guilt, um, and my mom went through that. She really blamed herself, especially given the fact she didn't want to bring him home in the first place that day. And so there was a lot of guilt. There was this sense of we should have done something. Um, we just felt very alone driving to the hospital. Um, and then when they walk you into the hospital and take you back to that little room, um, that experience is one well, you know, I'll always remember. But it was, it was a very surreal experience and one that, um, I've always hoped that we could do whatever we could to help someone else not go through that. And I think in the brink of a moment, for someone who's that depressed, that is their only solution. And that's what I've come to terms with. And I, I don't have that guilt anymore as I've gotten older. I really started to understand I have a real heart for people going through any kind of depression or um, addiction or suicide because there are so many variables that you have no control over as a family member. And I think that's what is so painful for family is, you know, your sense is you want to do something to help. And especially as women, we're, I'm, I'm call myself a, a reform fixer upper because I'm always wanting to fix things, you know, for my family. And when this kind of thing happens, you can't fix it. The person that has the addiction or the issue has to walk through that. Um, but the family is impacted so, so dramatically. So that's, um, that's probably our story. Um, that I never thought I'd have to face, but uh, certainly it's one that God, by his grace, got us through, and it was our source of comfort and support during that process. In looking back, and you mentioned 2020 hindsight, are there warning signs? You know, the person you love is addicted, and they're struggling with that, Depression is is just a part of that. It's you know seem the two seem to go together. But warning signs are what to look for. You know if, if you sense that the one you love is is losing that battle and might make an attempt on their own life. And looking back, are there are there some things to look for? Um, initially, we that was the first thought. Well, what should we have seen or what could we have watched for? I think, um, as hindsight, looking back, um, we should have had some type of support system available for him and for us after he went through the, the actual um, rehab itself and that process. Um, there should have been, we should have found some group to plug into um, support system in that regard. But we didn't. And so in looking back on some signs that we could have seen there, I think the change in personality, someone who um, was always gregarious and outgoing, starting to see that change a little bit in October, November of that year, um, maybe start to question uh, what's happening here. But in our busyness of everybody working and, you know, doing their thing, um, we just attributed it to, um, you know, he's probably just tired or busy or whatever. One of the things that uh, I was thinking of also that, like you said, there has been, you did the best you 
could do at the mm-hmm. time. And as we have seen, we've made a lot of progress in progressing and that there are groups. But I also think the relationship between the patient, physician, psychologist has changed and also mm-hmm. there's much more and more dialogue right. and uh, taking ownership. It's very mm-hmm. not uncommon and really encouraged to be your best advocate. Right. And right. at that time... You know, you did the best mm-hmm. you could. And so uh, those are the things that uh, I think. But I appreciate uh, finding wholeness in your brokenness mm-hmm. and and that. But there is hope Absolutely. that's out there today. What I was thinking about, Caroline, the burning question for me is what held you together? Well, obviously, um, in our own power, we were broken. We were devastated. We were lost. Um, I'm, I just think of a number of adjectives to describe us at that time. We were lonely, lost, hurt, um, guilty, um, just helpless, that helpless feeling. And I think in the midst of all that, um, I was a, a fairly new Christian at the time anyway, and my belief system was just really growing in that area. And God, I believe, had his hand on us. Because throughout that, I remember going home the evening after um, he was taken to the mortuary and I was by myself. And God just clearly gave me a scripture from, from the Old Testament, from Psalms. And I just, even today, use it as a source of comfort. And that's be still and know that I am God. And sometimes when we don't know what else to do, that's when we need to be still and just allow God to minister to us. And we, um, I experienced great healing through that you know you think the worst thing that can happen to you in your life would be to experience that but i have to tell you that as a new christian it bolstered my belief system and um i just saw that god can heal us and ultimately obviously um our family to go through that and so there's been many um times that i've been able to in my life draw back on uh, that experience and know that no matter what you're going through God has an answer for that. And I remember in, in the movie, The Hiding Place, uh, the true story about Corey Ten Boom, um, she, she had such a powerful testimony on her situation. And she used a phrase that I've drawn on many times and that is, no problem is so great that God is not greater. And we don't always see the immediate answer, but if we trust him, he will get us through. It's a... A sad story, but at the same time, the way you have come through it and the way you have uh, thrived uh, through the years, it, it just that, that power, Dan, greater than ourselves. Mm-hmm. God, as mm-hmm. we understand him, mm-hmm. as we go through the steps, is the one who brings us through. Uh, we, uh, I've been handed an email. Debbie handed me an email, and it's from a young lady named Karen. And I just want to share this with you. And Dan and uh, Carolyn, you've lived through this, so you, you, you know, fire away. Uh, Karen says, I recently left my boyfriend who has an addiction to cocaine. He's now uh, five hours away from me. I'd like to help him, but his family just doesn't seem to take it seriously. I told his mother she would lose her son if she didn't do something about it. I know it's hard for him because I... Uh, you know, you know, because I just recovered from addiction at the age of 19. I'm now 24. What do you recommend I do? I just can't forget about him. Everybody seems to just give up or not do enough. 
with this uh, request and this comment, my my heart uh, goes out. I can I mm-hmm. sense the pain mm-hmm. and the frustration, and I think I come back and just uh, admire you for uh, staying with your recovery. And one of the things that uh, you've noticed, I noticed that uh, that you said that he's now five hours away from me. And you'd like to do something, and but what? And one of the things that I think is real important is for you yourself to stay healthy and to evaluate the relationship, first of all, and also to put some boundaries. And one thing I always think about is the, the word toxic loyalty, when I become too loyal to a person that it is destroying me or others. Mm-hmm. And maybe just have a real heart-to-heart uh, talk with him or dialogue and be honest with him and let him know if there's something in a relationship or if it's just a friendship, be kind. But set a bottom line, a bottom line that you can live with, but also setting boundaries that you really do care for him, but to have to care in healthy ways. And again, not isolating. And I think uh, your recovery group friends sharing that and getting wisdom for other people in the journey, because it has to be your decision, but there might be some real healthy guidelines from your co-recovery people Mm -hmm. that you don't have to journey alone. And I would uh, contend to, who are we speaking to again, Karen? Karen, um, my guess would be, having been the family observing an, one who's addicted, is there's probably a, a lot of denial still within that family. You see the pain. You've been through the recovery. My guess would be his family really wants to just kind of put this aside and not deal with it. And in denying that, denying that there's a problem, they don't see a need to do anything different. And so... Um, that recovery has to come from him, and that was the point. My dad finally got to the point, and fortunately my mother, who who stayed with him for a long time, said they had their come-to-Jesus meeting. Bob, you either do this or you move out. And so her boundary, she knew what her boundary was, and at that point then she made the decision that he had to make a decision. You choose the help, you choose intervention, you choose treatment, and you're welcome here. But I love you too much to live here and destroy our family. And so those boundaries that uh, Dan is talking about, I think, are huge. Karen, you have given us a wonderful idea. Next week, we are going to be talking about being in a family and, and someone you love is an addict. So we are going to be searching that. Uh, Carolyn is going to be with us again and, and talk about the experiences over the years of living with an alcoholic. And, and hopefully out of that, we can give you some tools and give you some resources, point you in the right direction at least, as to where you can go uh, to get a little bit of help. As usual, uh, Dan Geating, thank you for, for being along. Carolyn, uh, your story is uh, is very touching. Your story is something that needs to be shared, and I thank you for doing that. And for you, understand that out of helplessness, out of hopelessness, Look up. There is hope. There is never an end to those who put their trust and faith in a God who loves you very much. This is Ned Wicker. This has been Recovery Now. See you next week.